to the Public Safety Innovators Podcast. Connecting you with experts and trendsetters who are leading innovation in law enforcement, private security, and personal protection. And now, your host, Adam Wills. Welcome to episode 23 of the Public Safety Innovators Podcast. Have you ever built a nuclear reactor in your garage? Well, today's guest did at the age of 13. Blake Resnick is the founder and CEO of Brink Drones. They are a relatively new kid on the block in the drone world and have built the world's first tactical deployment specific drone called the Lemur. This thing can break through glass, open doors, and create a direct line of communication with a barricaded subject. Blake is going to share with us his vision for the future of drone technology and his crazy and inspirational entrepreneurial story that all started with a nuclear reactor in his garage. You guys are going to love this episode, so let's just jump into the show. Welcome to the Public Safety Innovators Podcast. Today, we have Blake Resnick from Brink Drones on, and uh, he is the 21-year-old founder and CEO of Brink Drones, and he's going to tell us about their brand new Lemur drone today. Blake, welcome to the show, man. Yeah, no, sincere thanks for having me. So tell us, what uh, what's the Lemur? Uh, what is Brink Drones in general? What are you guys doing? Yeah, Absolutely. Lemur, in essence, is like a, a small quadcopter designed to aid SWAT teams de-escalate dangerous situations, usually barricades and like high-risk warrant searches. Okay. And so when you say it's it's small, I mean, how small are we talking here? It's about a square foot, weighs about pound and a half, two pounds. So pretty small, small enough to like throw in a backpack and yeah, take take to a scene if that's what you want to do. Okay. Now, I mean, that was a pretty distinct description you gave me there, pretty specific uh, about what the the lemur is for, what you guys are, are looking to accomplish with, with it is specific to SWAT teams and barricaded situations. That's a lot more of a specific description than what I would normally anticipate getting from a drone manufacturer. Normally, I would get something like, well, we manufacture drones for public safety. So tell me why the specific focus on SWAT teams and barricaded subjects and those sort of applications. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from from the very beginning, we were sort of talking with SWAT team members to, to try and really understand what their mission is like. And what we sort of realized from, from an early state is they want to fly these things indoors in a lot of cases. I mean, the, 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 whole, the whole sort of overarching goal of, of all of this is being able to find, isolate, and communicate with suspects like without risking human life. So we built a tool like very, very fine-tuned to accomplish that mission better than anything else in the world. So a, a lot of drones out there are capable of being launched and then hovering at you know 100 feet or something and providing overwatch uh, of, of a structure, which is totally helpful and there's a place for that. But we think that drones also make a lot of sense to actually make entry into that structure and find people. 
So sort of sort of the way like our stuff is is normally deployed on on SWAT callouts. It'll be deployed uh, around a block away uh, from a target structure, and it has great material penetration characteristics. So it can go through a ton of material, has radio range uh, far better than anything we've tested through some really nifty technology we've developed in the background. So it'll launch, fly a block to a target structure, clear the outside of the structure. So looking like, is there someone in the backyard? Uh, where windows, where doors, anything, you know, specifically we want to take a, a closer look at. From there, it'll, it'll find a vulnerable window and, and actually destroy that window with a really nifty, like tungsten carbide glass breaker attachment. So destroy the window, fly in through that opening, and then literally start clearing rooms with a, a very, very nice night vision and conventional RGB video camera. This is all fully HD. Uh, and, and night vision works so well, like you see just about as well in zero light conditions as you do middle of the day, like uh, high noon uh, in, in one of these uh, situations. So yeah, you, you basically go from there, clear rooms. If we encounter an interior door, in most cases, we can actually push that open with the aircraft, which is really interesting feature, uh, we think. And then if you ever end up on your back, like after a crash, we can actually flip ourselves over with a self-writing system, take back off, and then like oh, wow. continue a mission. Uh, and then, yeah, when, when we do find a suspect, we're the only drone in the world with cellular-based two-way audio. So the drone literally has a phone number, crisis negotiations team or SWAT command or really anyone can call into it, conference call, uh, and then have a full-blown conversation with someone through the drone. And yeah, that's sort of what our stuff does. Wow, that's a really awesome overview. And I want to back up and dive into some of that um, a little yeah. bit deeper. Before we do, though, I got to say, I'm going to give you an award right now, because I think you're probably the first person to use the word nifty multiple <laughs> times now on the show. <laughs> so yeah. so thanks for doing that. Um, oh, that's that's awfully nifty of you. Um, <laughs> I, I appreciate that. No, so I mean, that's cool, man. It sounds really awesome. I think this is the sort of direction that many of us in law enforcement could have maybe foreseen, but, or, or at least hoped for over the last number of years that that technology would get to this point. And I appreciate you explaining to me the, the breaching capabilities. I'm sitting here um, looking at your website right now. I've got a video up on my computer that's playing and watching your drone kind of fly around and it's got these rods sticking off of it. And I'm thinking, holy smokes, man, that thing would poke my eye out. So it's good to know that, that what, what the purpose of that that thing uh, <laughs> yeah. sticking off of there is. Mm -hmm. So so I guess let's back up to that point. I think first of all, uh, it's neat to know or nifty, I should say, it's nifty to know that you can fly the drone in from from like a block away, like you said. The the um, officer safety aspect of that is is huge, right? And then to be able to breach a window, my my first question though is. Obviously, there are different types of windows, mm -hmm. uh, you know, different thicknesses of glass. Some windows might have bars on them, especially in some more inner city urban environments. Sure. Uh, or, you know, the window might have blinds or curtains on the mm -hmm. inside of it. So are those contingencies that you guys have considered? And if so, how do you overcome those? Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely, totally a reasonable question. So sort of the way the, the glass breaker works is it's, it's tungsten carbide uh, spinning at about like 30,000 RPM. So tempered glass of any kind. So the stuff you'd find in vehicles or buses or like sliding glass doors, 
that immediately shatters like completely. And then from there, you can, you can sort of make entry and, and succeed at, at your mission. I'd say float glass is a little bit harder. So like the untempered stuff, uh, that can take a couple of hits, especially if it's dual paned, which is pretty normal in residences. But that, that's just sort of what you should, you should expect. Like it'll, it'll take two or three hits before you can clear out a window enough to fly through. And then, yeah, if you are dealing with blinds or something, the drone is, is fully ducted. So if, if the blinds are heavier, it's, it's actually something that we can just sort of rub up against without too many issues. If the blinds are like lighter weight, then the, the best strategy can be just sending it right into the structure just fast. So the blinds don't have time to sort of get caught in the props. But yeah, that, that's okay. sort of the, the rough functionality of the glass breaker. And I mean, another option, if that particular feature fails, uh, if, for example, there are bars or something on a window is just, you know, using, using a robot with a charge or something and then installing that, you know, blowing open the hole you need into the structure and then sending the drone in through that. So that's, that's yeah, another I mean, tactic that's employed a lot by our, our customers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at that point, you know, you've had the drone fly around the structure and clear it, so to speak. So, I mean, you sure. have a, a, at least a, a somewhat more reasonable assertion of what mm-hmm. the the safety of the environment is to move a SWAT team up to the structure and do a more traditional style breach, uh, whether that's a, uh, a physical breach or uh, an explosive breach, whatever it may be, and then and then send the drone in from there, right? Yep, absolutely. So while we're on the topic of glass, and maybe this is actually going down a rabbit trail, but that's okay. I love going down rabbit trails. Um, <laughs> totally. You know, all of us in law enforcement that have uh, uh, at least been around a little bit, we've all had our our share of opportunity to take shots at windshields on the, on the range, you know, train Mm -hmm. for shooting through a windshield of a vehicle. And we all know just how difficult that can be, right? Because of the, the nature of a windshield and how it's curved and the laminate on that sort of thing. So can you breach a laminate type, uh, windshield with the lemur drone as well? Or is that kind of off limits and, you know, you got to just go to the, the side window? Yeah. I mean, front windows are significantly harder for sure. We've gotten through rear windows many times like that. That's pretty straightforward, like side passenger glass, pretty straightforward. Front windows are more challenging. It's possible, but like it's, it's not something we can guarantee is going to be successful on, on every mission. That's sort of how we think about that. I mean, it's like, it's like any tool. It, it, it makes sense in certain situations, but you wouldn't want to use like a, a screwdriver as a pair of pliers. This is something that works better on side windows, residential glass. If you really have to get through a front window, then you, you might be better off looking at other tools. Man, you're all full of awesome stuff today. I'm writing down, you wouldn't want to use a screwdriver for a pair of pliers. That's that's a good, <laughs> yeah. that's a good quote. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like it's when we're building these things, like it's, it's always, it's always a really interesting trade-off, right? Because you want it to be useful in as broad of a set of situations as possible, but you also don't want to make big sacrifices that might make it significantly worse at one thing than like another significant part of its job. I think ultimately the tool we built is is basically the best thing that has come out yet for searching the interiors of structures. That is what we can do really, really well. And almost all the designs and decisions that we made to sort of result uh, in, in this aircraft coming about have been aligned with, with that mission. Uh, and a part of it was just being asked, like, 
we don't we don't want to send SWAT officers up to you know breach your window and rake it out so this drone can fly in. Like, can it do it itself? And pretty much every like novel feature, I'd say, that ended up making it into the Lemur platform arose in that way. It wasn't our idea. It was something we were asked for by SWAT team members because they used it on a barricade and they thought, wow, you know, this really would have been great if it could do X. And we listen. Well, that's, that's a pretty important trait to have as a business is to listen. That's great that that comes naturally to you. I want to, I want to go back to the the house now, that scenario, and let's mm-hmm. let's walk through that uh, a little bit more here. So we've we've gone up to the house and we've breached an entrance. Uh, whether the drone was able to do that itself, or you know, we had to physically go up and breach it. We've sent the drone inside the residence. Let's talk about where we go from there. I think first of all, my question is, how do you, when flying in an interior residence where there's obviously narrow spaces? and other obstructions, maybe ceiling fans or, or lights that are hanging from the ceiling or, you know, other things that can potentially cause an obstruction. How do you identify those, avoid them, or, or maybe you don't avoid them at all? How do you keep the drone from crashing? Because I've wrecked a lot of drones yeah. and broken a lot of rotors. Um, <laughs> yeah, totally. and, and I have far more experience with doing that than uh, flying a drone into something and it's still being in the air. Yeah, yeah, def- I'm no, totally, totally reasonable. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there, there are a couple layers to this. So the first is uh, we have like a LIDAR-based pilot assistance system. So that's helping a lot sort of keep the aircraft stable, preventing it from crashing into things and then failing and, and just, just making it easier to sort of navigate these like complicated indoor environments. So that that's part one. Part two is it just a very like durable, rugged drone. The whole thing is made out of like pre-preg carbon fiber, carbon fiber reinforced nylon, aluminums, titaniums, like durable materials, very, very different from the stuff you would find on like a, a conventional like DJI product. So even if you do hit something, a lot of cases, we just stay in the air, uh, especially since we have those ducts around the propellers. So Yeah, it takes a lot to actually kick us out of normal flight. But even if that does happen, we then have that self-writing system. So if you do end up on your back, you can flip yourself over, take back off and continue a mission. And I'd say like that, that combination of features just makes this pretty tolerant to the sort of situations that you would deal with in uh, a normal barricaded suspect type type scenario. So as we're flying through the structure, then I think you said earlier that it can open interior doors. Is is that right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. This is, this is another really, really interesting one. And one we've deployed many times on like real call outs. Yeah. Basically the, the drone, the drone has some structures and some uh, like grip pads on it, basically that allow it to bump up against a door uh, and then basically roll into it. So adjusting some of its like thrust vector into pushing the door the door open and yeah it can sort of make its way in now if a door is barricaded you know has you know tables and stuff behind it or is latched and locked then we can't really do it like the tactic there would be flying back out of the house seeing if there's a window into that room breaching that window and then flying in that way but like a normal interior door uh we can most cases push open yeah okay Awesome. Okay. So if we're flying through the house and we find a subject, 
Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier that you have technology on your lemur drone where it essentially has its own cell phone number so that you can have two-way communication with the subject. I assume that's via a loudspeaker or something like that. Is that right? Yeah, totally. Very powerful loudspeaker uh, and like a set of microphones. Yeah, the drone's fully capable of having like a full-blown conversation with someone. So explain to me a little bit more how that works on the operator side. Is uh, yeah. is it in fact the operator themselves that has to make that communication or can that be can there be somebody who's the operator of the drone flying it and making that contact and then someone else like a, a, a trained negotiator yep. that's actually on the line making that communication? Yeah, definitely. We we recommend it is a trained negotiator uh, talking through the drone. So it's it's actually really simple. Like the the drone has a cell phone number. It will automatically accept incoming calls, either from any number or a whitelist of numbers that are are pre-approved. The drone automatically accepts. The pilot then controls like speaker volume. So it can adjust from pretty low volume levels, like all the way up to extremely loud to the point even that it can issue like commands to a crowd. Uh, and then, then they just talk to someone sort of using the drone as like a very loud flying conference call. Like it's, it's really that simple. Okay. Awesome. Well, what else have we not covered as far as what it can do? I mean, I know that there's, uh, some videos on your website talking about payload and, and being able to carry objects. So what's the thought process behind that application? Yeah, it can definitely do a lot. I'd say we we sort of we we sort of went through like a lot of the core functionality, like being able to fly up to a structure, make entry, search rooms, push open doors, flip itself over after crashes, and communicate with suspects. But what's cool about what we built is it's a fully modular camera payload, and we have a secondary fully modular like accessory bay. So this allows you to expand out sort of the usefulness of the aircraft pretty far beyond that. So our standard camera, for example, is uh, an HD night vision camera, but we can also carry uh, FLIR optics if you want thermal imaging. Uh, we can carry zoom optics if that's important to you. Gimbalized stuff, like all, all of that is, is totally possible from the get-go with just one of our airframes. And yeah, we, we also have this sort of general purpose like accessory bay. Uh, so the glass breaker that we were talking about is like one example of something that can bolt on to the bottom of this drone using that bay. But uh, another one that we've had some success with is a general purpose dropper attachment. So literally, it's basically just a pull pin that attaches on the bottom of the drone that you can attach pretty much anything you want up to about a pound to. So bottles of water, like packs of cigarettes to help in negotiations, like you name it, this can pretty much handle it up to about like that pound of payload. We can also do like just general purpose lights. Uh, we can drop distraction advices. We can drop radio relay points so that you can expand your, your signal penetration and coverage like even further than like the, the conventional technology allows, like all sorts of interesting stuff. And if you have a cool idea for an attachment that we haven't thought of already, we're very open to building new ones. So yeah, I'd, I'd say those those two things, like the fact that you have a modular camera and this modular payload makes this much more of a general purpose tool than it would be otherwise. And something that could in literally 15, 20 seconds become pretty specialized in, and maybe have a capability that other drones don't. Uh, just one little example is talking to like a bomb squad 
teams, we can carry like chemical detectors in that same payload hard point. Yeah, pretty much That's pretty, pretty much cool. anything you can think of we can do. Yeah. Yeah, I have to admit my my brain started kind of going a little wild there, especially when you were talking about the the grabber attachment. And yeah. I had this vi- I had this vision of dropping a pepper ball grenade into right. a, into yeah, yeah, a room. Yeah. yeah, totally. It's it's it, it is possible. It is possible. Nice. Uh so as far as deployment goes, I mean you guys are still relatively new, right? I mean how how long is Brink been around? It's interesting. Like we we've we've been around for for a few years now, three three four years. The early days, we're okay. doing mostly stuff with uh, DHS, so like some some early like research projects. And then, really, really, what got us thinking about what got me thinking about the swap market was the the October one shooting uh, when when that happened in Las Vegas. So I'm I'm a Las Vegas native. It's where where the company's based. That event affected all of us personally, uh, unfortunately. And that, yeah. that's really what, what got us thinking, you know, maybe, maybe these, some of these ideas we were working on with DHS, like in the context of like large scale border control, maybe they have a place in the hands of SWAT teams for responding to critical incidents. And that, that's really what got us started with this. And I'd say we, we started that project about, about two years ago, uh, maybe, maybe a little longer ago than that. But yeah. That, so that's if you what, had... If you had to guess, and maybe you don't have to guess, maybe you already know this off the top of your head, h- how many law enforcement agencies are you in right now? Yeah, over over a dozen. And we're actively contracting with actually over, over 100. So uh, we're expanding out pretty fast. Awesome. The interesting fact, if you will, um, we were actually going to record this interview last week and uh, we ended up having to reschedule because you were meeting with some federal law enforcement agencies last week. You kind of had a meeting that came up last minute, and I don't fault you for taking that, by the way, and, and rescheduling <laughs> with me. But uh, I mean, so it's kind of neat to hear that you're expanding there. I certainly see the application, and uh, you know, did that go well? I hope. Yeah. No. Happy. Happy. <laughs> happy to say it did. No, we, we were, we were actually meeting with chief technology officer of, of a federal agency, uh, sort of doing a deep dive into the data security features and that sort of thing aboard border aircraft. So de- definitely an area that we care a lot about making sure that evidence and data stays safe and secure and inaccessible to, you know, potentially hostile actors. Since, yeah, some of the, some of the data you collect with this is likely going to be critical. Yeah, evidentiary, absolutely. No doubt. So what comes next for Brink Drones? You guys have any future innovations, ideas? I mean, I'm sure you do. You don't you don't become a, a, a CEO uh, at 21 of a company and not have <laughs> innovative ideas. So I guess really the question is, what can you share or what are you willing to share about what's in store for the future of Brink Drones? No, yeah, happy, happy to talk about that. We, we do kind of a cool idea, I think. So basically, we'd, we'd kind of like to make the police helicopter obsolete, or it, at least a lot less relevant than it is today, uh, and, and sort of build a police helicopter, not just for like the huge metropolitan areas that can afford it, but also for smaller police departments that can benefit a ton from all the advantages that that sort of technology provides, but maybe can't afford like the $10 million a year or whatever it is it takes to actually run an air unit. So kind of the form we think that would take is 
a large form factor drone with a couple of hours of flight time. We're, we're targeting two, three hours that could deploy from robotic nests on top of police and fire stations and then take off and respond to 911 calls or gunshot detections or critical incidents or really, really anything where a thermal imager and high resolution zoom camera flying in the sky could be helpful for public safety officers. That's not a small vision, Blake. Um, that's, that's pretty, <laughs> no. yeah, <laughs> I was expecting something smaller than that. No, uh, that's, that's awesome. I, I love that concept and I certainly see the application of, it, especially, you know, coming from my background and mo- mostly rural law enforcement. I mean, I did some, uh, some municipal law enforcement early on in my career, but for the bulk of my career, I was in a rural law enforcement agency and, you know, that was a luxury that, you know, we always looked at these large municipalities as having that we just didn't, we, we couldn't have, not only yeah. because of budgetary constraints, but also because the, the geographic area we would have to cover was, it was just unrealistic. And so sure. I, I love the, the vision for that and that concept. So it got me thinking about a couple of things. Yeah. And, and I'll ask you about them because you mentioned, deploying these from from nests which mm-hmm. sounds very similar to the DFR program that we've been talking about on on the show a bit and being able to respond to gunshot detections and stuff like that which this is more of just a, a side note for the listeners that next month I will be having shot spotter on the show so really looking forward to hearing from them they are going to talk about some of their ideas for future integration with this type of technology and, and DFR and, and that sort of thing. So I guess maybe as a, in advance of that show, I, I guess, can you tell me what your thoughts are about that is in using drones, this helicopter concept, if you will, this in, in a DFR setting, as well as integrating with platforms like ShotSpotter? I, I think it is a great idea. I, I feel very strongly that yeah, that, that this is, this is the future. I mean, especially thinking back to, to what got me started in this industry at all, which was that October one shooting. If this whole system was built out and functional when that happened, that event would have gone down very differently. Shot spotter integration in the city integrated with, you know, a drone in a nest on top of a police station area command, like a mile or less away, literally like within Within seconds of that first gunshot being fired, ShotSpotter would have immediately localized it, determined where this was coming from, determined that it is, in fact, very likely a gunshot. We would get that GPS ping. You know, the doors on a nest would open up, drone would launch, fly there, arrive literally 45 seconds at most. These things are going to be pretty fast. And then give first responders immediate situational awareness of, of what was going on, especially with a thermal imager. Yeah. First, first responders within, within a minute of that shooting starting would have known that the shooting was coming from the Mandalay Bay. They would have known roughly what floor it was. They would have been able to see in and see that there was, you know, one, one person doing it. And then either a much better coordinate assets to, to stop the shooting as quickly as possible. Or in that situation, most likely just try to fly the drone into the guy to, to stop, stop people from being killed. 
So that that's just one example. But I, I think the number of situations that come up on a very regular basis for for public safety where where this could be tremendously helpful is staggering. And for law enforcement, but also fire, being able to get like a flying thermal imager above a 911 call for a structure fire, literally 30 to 60 seconds after that 911 call comes in, it's going to change the world. It's going to save a lot of people's lives across all yeah. of these sorts of events. So we don't, we yeah. don't talk about those guys on this show. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I just, I think, I think probably the future of this is it's a piece of infrastructure that everyone can use to, to help keep people safe from yeah. fire to police, to maybe the feds, maybe emergency medical, definitely search and rescue. Yeah, there, there, there are applications across all of that. I love it. I love your vision. I think it's absolutely awesome. And I mean, um, it just it just feels like the future too, right? I mean, drones drones have displaced helicopters in so many industries. You know, I mean, just take film production for a second. I mean, back 20, 20, 30 years ago, whenever you saw an aerial shot, it was it was a helicopter charging. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, thousands of dollars per flight hour to get that video. And nowadays it's been almost completely displaced by large drones. And I, I think the same sort of thing is is kind of inevitable in, in the sphere of public safety. Yeah. Improperly pricing your product or service is one of the most common methods of entrepreneurial self-sabotage. There is a whole lot more to consider when pricing your product than just simply calculating overhead and profit margins. Pricing is psychological. Recently, I made the decision not to purchase something because I thought it was too cheap. I had considered joining some group coaching. The webpage I looked at was incredible and the coaching itinerary had everything I wanted and then some. I was excited to sign up and knowing what other similar courses cost, I was prepared to spend a few hundred dollars a month. When I got to the bottom of the page, I was amazed to discover that it was only $47 a month. But I wasn't excited. I was confused. I began to wonder if the course was actually as great as it said it was. Surely if that person really believed in their product, they would have charged more. Eventually, I decided that it was too much of a risk to my money and more importantly, my time to sign up. In my mind, the $47 investment became a much greater risk than a $300 one. The person offering this course sabotaged their own sales by being too cheap. Everyone loses in a race to the bottom, so quit being cheap and price your products appropriately. When pricing your product, keep these three simple rules in mind. Your product should be priced in proportion with the following. Number one, the problem it solves for your customer. Number two, the type of customer you want to attract, and number three, the value which you want your customer to place on having it. Remember this, the moment you make a mistake in pricing, you're jeopardizing either your reputation or your profits, and sometimes both. Thanks for listening to the Marketing Minute. Check out every chapter at psi.chat forward slash marketing minute. Well, Blake, we've heard a lot about your vision now, and I really just want to 
take a bit of a dive into you and uh, your entrepreneurial journey, because I think just with the limited amount of information I know from talking to you before the show, your entrepreneurial story is really inspirational and, and it just sounds amazing. And so from my understanding, your entrepreneurial journey kind of starts with like something about a fusion reactor in your basement or your bedroom or something or garage. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you start there and tell us about your fusion reactor? Yeah, that would freak the neighbors out properly. Um, yeah. I so I, I, yeah, I, I built, I built something pretty cool. It's called like an inertial electrostatic confinement, uh, nuclear fusion reactor. And <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I got one of those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I, I built one in my garage. I think I was, I was 13 or 14 uh, when, when I did the project and yeah, it, it basically did like deuterium, deuterium fusion. So it, it fused like an isotope of hydrogen into helium. And every time one of those fusion events would occur, it would generate like neutron radiation, bunch of energy and, and yeah, like straight up helium. And I ended up, this is a little technical, but I ended up proving that I was doing it using something called like silver. Wait, silver wait, no, no, no. Yeah, time out, yeah. time out, time out. Yeah, <laughs> sure. You, you just started to lead in with, this is a little bit technical as if what you just shared wasn't technical. At all. <laughs> yeah, Cause fair, I didn't, I didn't follow yeah. that at all. And I'm sorry. I don't mean, to, I don't mean <laughs> no, to be yeah, the dumb yeah. guy on this interview, but I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, but that's awesome. Yeah. No, Go ahead was, with what you were going to share. <laughs> no, you, yeah, you were good. It was a fun project. <laughs> I mean, I, I learned a ton I learned a ton. Probably, probably wasn't hugely responsible for me to be doing this at like 13, but uh, it happened. <laughs> and I'm alive. <laughs> it probably turned out okay. Yeah, it was. It was. It was a really fun project. What was the purpose of that? Like, what were you trying to achieve uh, with that project? Just to prove I could do it, really. Hey. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. There's okay. something kind of cool about building building your own nuclear reactor. And yeah, I just, I wanted to do it. I wanted to learn more about like physics. Uh, and this was sort of a, a good excuse to do both of those things. I'm going to give you quote number two of the day. Um, mm. I don't usually do this. Just look for quotes that my guests have given me, but you've given <laughs> me so many that you wouldn't. So the first one was you wouldn't use a screwdriver for, for a, 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 a oh, what did you say? A wrench or a pair of pliers? Something like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And now it's uh there's just something cool about building your own nuclear reactor. I, I love that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I can't say it was for any like high minded purpose. I just wanted to learn more about, about how these things worked. And I, I wanted to build one because I thought it was cool. And yeah, I, I was able to, I'd, I'd say that was, that was my first like really big uh, engineering project. My son is going to be around that same age range in not very many years. And I can't imagine him <laughs> building a nuclear reactor in my garage. Um, yeah, no, it always it always it, starts small, though. Really, I mean, like <laughs> I, I start it all, always. It starts off like taking toasters apart, right? Taking like hair dryers apart and putting Legos together. That's that's what tweakers do, baby. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I just you, you just you have to start somewhere. And for me, that's 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 what I did. To to my parents' credit, they. Um, they, they would let me, not always happily, especially when my mom would find like a disassembled hairdryer you know, in her bathroom. But um, yeah, that, that's what got me started. And 
from there, I, I think just the projects have, have just gotten bigger and more complicated and it's led to me where to where I am now. All right. Well, tell me a little bit more about that. So how did you go from yeah. nuclear fusion reactor to there's pretty cool internships, I guess, that you had that maybe imparted some of the wisdom into your current uh, state of ingenuity at Brink. So I, I guess, what does that journey look like? How did you end up where you are today and deciding, you know what, I can manufacture and build uh, drones? I think actually the nuclear reactor project helped a lot get get some of those early internships. So yeah, my, my first was over at McLaren Automotive, which by the way, it was like totally a dream come true. Like being able to work there and I, I did that right after the the nuclear reactor thing. So I was probably fourteen or so uh, when when I was there, and it was That's it was cool, it was just amazing. Like they're the, uh, like huge Formula One team, make crazy supercars. Like every day, sort of walking to lunch, like I would pass MP4 dash four, which is one of the most like legendary Formula One cars ever. And it, it, yeah, the whole the whole thing was just like deeply cool, and I, I enjoyed every minute of. And I'd say, like, I credit them pretty highly with sort of teaching me how to be an engineer. Because I, I like, I had some vague ideas sort of going through the nuclear reactor project and some like earlier stuff, but it was, it was never formalized in the way that being an engineer actually is documenting steps, finite element analysis on parts, doing manufacturing analyses. Like they, they taught me a lot about what what being a mechanical engineer in industry like is is really about so for that sincere thanks to mclaren um yeah if anyone from there happens to be listening and i i also i also got a chance to actually design some parts that that made it on a car so if you ever find yourself under like nice. a mclaren 720s like you'll you'll see some parts that that i helped design which, oh yeah, um, I got one of those in the garage. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah right next was to my nuclear reactor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, McLaren McLaren was great. And then from there, I went over to uh, Tesla Motors, where I worked on like battery technology and controls engineering. Um, both things that like really really influenced the design of the Lemur. So we have we have like over uh, a thirty minute flight time on that aircraft, and over a ten hour standby time. Um, wow which are both numbers that are basically unheard of in the drone industry for, for an aircraft that's this small and carrying this much gear. And that that's really enabled uh, because we're using Tesla-like battery technology in, in our drones. To, to my knowledge, I think we're, we're, we're definitely one of the only drone manufacturers using 21700 lithium-ion cells in, in an aircraft, which for us has had great results. So yeah, when I was there, also got to like meet Elon. So sort of like life goal fulfilled with that. And then most recently, I, I worked under the the head of R and D for DJI. So uh, world's world, world's largest drone company by you know a significant margin, and learned a ton about how like the the eight hundred pound grill in the space really works. So yeah, that that's sort of my my professional history. And from there, I, I started Brink initially to do the stuff with DHS. Uh, and then after, after October one, starting to think about SWAT drones. That is really cool, man. Uh, I, I gotta tell you what, what I didn't hear in <laughs> sure. your story there. Yeah. No, Cause obviously we've laughed and made jokes about what I did here, but what I didn't hear in there was college education 
Yeah. So tell tell me about the do you do you have a college degree or or what? Yeah, totally. So I started I started college pretty early. I yeah I I, I started I think twelve or thirteen uh, was yeah my my first first sort of experience in college. So uh, I, I skipped some grades in like middle elementary school. I went to high school for like a year, and then after that I started I started doing college full time. So started off at like UNLV, which was my sort of local university in Las Vegas. Uh, and then from there went, went to like Northwestern and I was at Northwestern for about a year and then dropped out to do the, to do the Brink stuff. So no, I mean, weirdly, like my, my highest formal, like education credential is, I, I don't even remember what it's called, like a GED, which is something I had to get before I could start taking college classes at UNLV. So yeah, that's sort of my, my educational history. I, I actually really respect that a lot. Um, I think that's neat. And I, I will say that you definitely sound like you're kind of a, a, a cut above in the, uh, the, the genius spectrum. Uh, <laughs> definitely would not sorry, go that certainly far, smarter but. than me. Um, <laughs> no, but, I mean, like, you know, I, yeah, I just, I, I think school, school is never just, it was never a great fit for me. And I mean, another, another part of this is like, I, I'm, I'm a dyslexic, right? So very early on, like struggled with reading, struggled with writing, had to spend like a lot of effort just to, just to sort of get up to my grade level in, in the early days, uh, specifically in, in like those reading and writing, like related, uh, fields to this day, I can't spell at all. So that, that, that's still, um, that still is a deficiency. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I, I think formal education is, built better for some people than for others. And, uh, yeah. for me, it was, it was just never, it was never a great fit, but I mean, I, I fully respect the, the other folks that, that make it work and get a lot out of it. And I mean, I, I, I think there's, there's absolutely a place for education and higher education. Just for me, it wasn't, it wasn't really the right fit. I, yeah. I would sort of agree with that statement. I mean, I, I I have a degree. Okay. Um, I wasted lots of money Um, (laughs) and I would agree with you to some degree. And I'm not trying to dog on anybody else here that has a degree of any sort, regardless of what it's in. I, I I would agree partially with your statement that there is um, a place for higher education and degree. And I think there are some things that you, you absolutely have to go get a degree for. Uh, You you really don't have a choice. I, I think, however, as a technology has advanced that has allowed us access to more information um, in just the day and age that we live in. Yeah. I think the need for a degree is less applicable across more disciplines than what it used to be. And I've said it on this show a bunch of times. So thanks for just proving my point. The, there's a lot of people that listen to the show that are copreneurs that are that are wanting to start their own business and they're um, you know either still cops or or maybe they just left law enforcement and there's this notion in a lot of people's head that well I can't start my own business unless I have an MBA mm-hmm. I can't be an entrepreneur unless I have a degree and you you have just absolutely proven that point as I've said on this show that you don't need an MBA to run a successful yeah. business there's so much information out there and, and I'll throw it out again as I have in the past. Uh, I absolutely swear by the book business made simple. It's essentially a 60 day MBA and, uh, I've offered it on this show before. A bunch of you have taken me up on it. So I'll offer it again. 
If anybody wants a copy of that book, just shoot me an email at adam at psi.chat. I will gladly put one in the mail and send it to you. I just think that everything you need is there to start and run and grow a successful business. And Blake has, has just proved that to us here. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think that's, that's very true. And I mean, it, it, even, even if you look historically, uh, who, who has built companies that have really changed the world? Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, I mean, Dell, Ellison, like, I mean, like even, even, yeah, <laughs> we'll see. But I mean, even, <laughs> even, even, even Elon like dropped out of, of his master's program. So yeah, he did. I mean, there's, this industry specifically like like technology ceos technology entrepreneurs are they're just the, the ranks are filled with dropouts and i don't i don't know really specifically why that is but there's some relationship there um which i, I think is kind of interesting and there, there there's some cool programs as well now that uh kind of kind of support this um so like the, the teal fellowship is is one example one I, I I got to be a part of actually in their their 2020 class, and they th- their their whole thing is they will literally pay smart kids with an idea for a company uh, to drop out of college. If oh, you really? drop out, wow. yeah, it's a, it's a crazy program, but it's been highly successful. Yeah, I mean, if if you're a smart kid working on a company in college, they'll give you a hundred thousand dollars to drop out and try to build it. Huh. And yeah, That's so cool. yeah, it's super cool program started by like Peter Thiel, who's probably, probably the most famous like technology investor currently alive. And if, if you look at the results of the program and like where, where some of these kids have gone, like they've generated tens of billions of dollars of value uh, for the world. I mean, truly built some, some great companies. So no, it's just, it's, it's just, it's not a requirement. I think the world is sort of coming around to the fact that you don't need a college degree to build a company that matters. Uh, and there are resources out there like the Teal Fellowship to, to sort of help you along if, if that's a path you're interested in pursuing. Yeah, and I would agree with that. And I don't, I don't think it's just tech, though. Um, I yeah. mean, I think there's, there's un- other industries that kind of touch tech, if you will, that, sure. uh, sort of would fall under that same thing because, you know, as you know, I, I, I own and run a, a marketing agency yep. and I have hired web designers, graphic designers, and it has almost kind of become a point now where if I'm looking at somebody, uh, to hire for one of those positions, if they have a college degree, in graphic design or web design, that almost makes them less appealing to me because by the time best practices get to the college level, when it has anything to do with technology, it's, you know, by the time the textbooks are written and, and sent to the universities, it's already old information. Sure. And then you study that old information for four years. And by the time you come out, your, your skill set is already at least four years behind what we're doing now. Sure. And anymore, a lot changes in a week, let alone four years. Right. No, I, I think, I think that's true. And we, we were talking about how maybe college isn't the right fit for everyone. Um, I think, I think there are also some fields where college doesn't make a ton of sense. And graphic design is probably an example of, of one of them. Like uh, just, it, it just, it seems like the sort of thing where you could 
you could conceivably improve a lot based off of like online assets uh, and, and hands-on experience and exactly and just doing it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, and I'd say yeah. I'd say entrepreneurship is very much the same way. You yeah, just gotta definitely. you gotta get in the weeds and you gotta do it and you gotta get after it and you gotta wake up every morning with a purpose uh, driven mindset and and just get after it. Um, yeah, I, I I do not think college can effectively teach entrepreneurship. Um, that, that just seems pretty much impossible to me. Yeah. Well, I, I'm assuming that along the way, even though <laughs> as far as number of years is concerned compared to probably most of us that are, uh, listening to the show, your, your journey has been a little bit shorter. Um, but I am sure that along the way you have, uh, learned some valuable lessons and can offer us some, uh, insight into, building and starting a business, what would you say, or, I mean, throw out a couple golden nuggets, if you would, yeah. of, of what you've learned and, and what you would uh, either advise everyone else on that is trying to start their own business or caution them against. Yeah. I mean, it's just incredibly hard. Like, like that, that's, that's sort of the main, the main thing, like however hard you think it's going to be, it's likely harder and more painful than that. Which is, it's like, not, not. Jeez, man. Yeah, it's hard to be a downer with that. But yeah. uh, it, it's, it's true. It's just, I mean, one, one, one quote I heard, which I, I thought was pretty, pretty accurate is like starting a company, especially this sort of company where like you're building really complicated technologies and having to scale manufacturing a ton and having to do, you know, big sales volumes and all of that, like very rapidly. It, it's sort of like jumping off a cliff. And then having to build like a functioning airplane before you hit the ground. That, that is sort of what starting a technology company is like. So if, 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 you, feel, if you feel very strongly that you know, what, what you want to do is important for the world and important for your happiness, and it would be, it would be hard to be happy without trying to, to build this, you know, some, some sort of organization, then yeah, I, I think you should do it. But if, yeah, I mean, if, if you're in a position where you need, you know, a lot of convincing to, to sort of try to build, build an organization, then yeah, it, it's going to be, it's going to be a hard road ahead. Now, one, one thing I will sort of say about all of that is it is kind of specific to, to building like high growth companies where like at the end of the day, you want to be a publicly traded, you know, huge organization. And I, I think, I think it's probably different for companies that have, you know, more modest ambitions just to be like a, a nice functioning couple million dollar company and then stay, stay there in perpetuity. That, that I think is, is less painful, but um, yeah, I mean, when, when, when you're trying to, to actually change the world, get hard. <laughs> so I guess that that's, that's the first thing that, that comes to my head. Like just, if, if you're going to do this, uh, expect it to be hard. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate the realism involved in that. You know, I, I gave you a little bit of a hard time there, uh, for maybe being a little bit pessimistic, but, but I mean, it's, it's, it's real and, you know, we don't, you don't want to have false pretenses. Uh, and it is a challenge. It, it's a huge challenge. And, and I, I got to tell you, you know, I've been through a lot of challenges in the last several years myself, um, yeah. starting and growing my own business, but, uh, I, I, I enjoy it every day I wake up 
Uh, yeah. I, yeah. I just, it's, it's so much fun and fulfilling and knowing that I get to do what I want and I get to work with yeah. who I want and it's on yeah. my terms. It's, it is, it is deeply fulfilling. Like that, that much is true. It is, it is deeply fulfilling. Most fulfilling thing I've, I've ever done for sure, especially in like a professional context. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't think you can really argue that. And I think like the other, the other, the other reason why I bring up just the fact that it, it, it is also hard is sort of the first thing is I think in some ways it's a little encouraging because there, there will be times when you're, when you're trying to build a company where, yeah, you, you have, you have bad days, right? Where, where it's a big thing that you've been working on for a while and you're counting on like doesn't happen. That'll occur. And I, I think it's, it's important to keep in mind just that even the best companies, I mean, even the ones that really succeed in, in the marketplace and, and do change the world, they have those bad days too. And they had those bad days in the beginning. And most likely the founders of those companies considered at, at least one point giving up like before they made it. So if you do encounter those days where those thoughts sort of pass through your brain, just acknowledge and, and realize that they're kind of normal to the process. And even the best, like go through that sort of thing. That's really good advice, Blake. Well, uh, it's been awesome having you on the show. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. I make it, I could sit here and chat with you for another hour easily, but, uh, you know, it's, we're, we're almost at an hour now. (laughs) So (laughs) uh, why don't you, uh, why don't you go ahead and let everybody know that's listening? Um, if they want to get some more information about Brink drones, um, or they just want to connect with you, where can they find you website, social media, emails, whatever you got? Yeah, definitely. Our, our website would be a, a good place to start, uh, which is just brinkdrones.com, uh, B-R-I-N-C-D-R-O-N-E-S.com. Uh, and then, yeah, please like feel free to reach out on LinkedIn as well. Um, just Blake Resnick there. And uh, I'd, I'd be happy to chat if you're interested. Awesome. Well, any other closing thoughts? No, just sincere thanks for, uh, for having me on. And I, I'm looking forward to our next conversation. Yeah, likewise. We'll put all of the links to everything that uh, Blake mentioned in the show notes of the episode. You can find that at psi.chat forward slash 023 for episode 23. Um, And you'll find all the links to social media accounts and uh, website and everything else that we talked about on the show today there. Thanks again, Blake, for being on the show. And as always, everybody stay innovative. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the end of the show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review at psi.chat forward slash review. I would love to hear your feedback and it will also help other public safety innovators like yourself find the show. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode. Just go to psi.chat, click on episodes and search this episode number and you'll find all the links, descriptions and resources we talked about. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe and you'll be notified when the next episode is live. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch you guys on the next episode.